Episode 120, Autograph Hound. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a November 17, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. We are the crowd, we're coming out, got my flash on, it's true, need that picture of you, it's so magic. Today, paparazzi and fans stalk celebrities to get autographs. In the 1960s, a signature from a friend was good enough. As long as they signed your ridiculously cute stuffed wiener dog. Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine an autographed dog. Find out how one little girl from Marysville, Kansas, trumped all her classmates by getting the signature of a very famous coach. Then, we go behind the scenes to hear from curators as they talk about how museums get artifacts. Most artifacts come from the kind donations of everyday people, but with tight budgets and legal responsibilities that last for decades, curators often have to tell people no. Find out if you have what it takes to be a curator. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect the Emporia newspaper editor to the Roscoe Wind Farm. This massive wind farm covers four counties in West Texas and generates more power than some nations. Did William Allen White once use the Roscoe Wind Farm in a joke about why Oklahoma is so windy? But first, autograph hound. Good afternoon, Nikayla. Hello, Merle. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a stuffed white cloth dog from the 1960s. Uh, this is not your ordinary dog, though, because it's right. stuffed, for one thing. Yeah. It'd be hard, um, to, hard to sign a live dog. It is. Yeah. And you would be signing it because this is what's called an autograph dog, which means he has names scribbled in black ink all over his body. Right. Uh, to include one very impressive autograph on his right rear rump. <laughs> yes. That's easy for you to say. I know. Uh, today, we just usually sign yearbooks, but apparently in the 1960s, I guess classmates like to sign stuffed animals. Uh, the signing tradition goes back further than that, though. Uh, what is an autograph dog, and from where does the autographing concept evolve? Well, as you mentioned, an autograph dog is a stuffed animal that children ask their friends, family, and classmates to sign. Um, the toy we have, he's very tightly stuffed, and he's covered with a really smooth, tightly woven cotton, which would make him easier to sign. So mm -hmm. there's not a lot of room for the ink to bleed and stuff like that. So he's built to be autographed. It he, wasn't just a stuffed animal that somebody grabbed and said, hey, let's, let's sign this. Right. He was made for autographing. They were sold especially for that. Um, the tradition, though, did not begin with gathering the signatures of celebrities like we think of today. That's kind of where, you know, you think autographing, you think celebrities. Sure. Um, autograph books had their beginning in the mid-16th century um, in Germany and um, 
and the Dutch-speaking countries um, among students and scholars. They called the books um, Book of Friends or Friendship Books, and they started them as students, had their friends and instructors sign them, and then continued to keep them as their careers advanced. Um, and they would add the signatures of other intellectuals that they worked with. Right. It wasn't about getting a, uh, someone's signature because they're going to be famous. It was, right. It was, uh, I need to keep track of them. Exactly. Yeah. So sign this so I got your name written down somewhere. Exactly. Kind of a memento. Um their popularity continued, and German immigrants brought the idea with them to the United States in the 1800s, and then later on, they were replaced by yearbooks in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very long tradition. This particular dog belonged to Candy Kramer, which is the, I, I love that first name, Candy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who was Candy? Well, in 1960, Candy was a young Kansan and Brownie Girl Scout living in Marysville, Kansas, which is kind of in north-central Kansas near the Nebraska border. Um, that year, her family was preparing to move to New York. Aww. Yeah, isn't that sad? That is. Yeah, and Candy took the dog with her to a brownie day camp and had her friend sign it before she moved away. Autograph dogs are a different concept than, cele- than celebrity autographing, like we talked about. Right. Yeah, actually, uh, both concepts apply to this particular pup. How so? Right. Well, the idea of the autograph dog is to simply gather the signature of friends and family as a way to remember them. Um, when you're apart or years later after you've moved on in life. But Candy does have one celebrity autograph on her dog, and that is the signature of Forrest C. Fogg Allen. Um, Allen was a longtime basketball coach at the University of Kansas, um, so he's probably more famous to Kansans than he is, and people who follow the Basketball Hall of Fame, maybe, uh, than he is to the general public. But he is a known, a known name. Um, he's often referred to as the father of basketball coaching, and he was influential in getting basketball included in the 1936 Olympics. And then he coached in the 1952 Olympic Games. Um, though Allen is known as a basketball coach, he wasn't necessarily famous to the Kramer family. Uh, Candy's father actually played basketball under Allen at KU in the 1920s. Are you serious? Yeah. And so he was kind of a friend of the family, and he visited them in Marysville before they moved away, and that's when he signed Candy's dog. Yeah. So the name Allen, uh, if you uh, watch basketball or if you go to watch a, a, a game at the University of Kansas, you will be watching in Allen Fieldhouse, which was a fieldhouse name for uh, Coach Fogg, Fogg Allen. Allen while he was still alive, yes. I believe. The, yes, the fieldhouse was. was built and named for him. Yes. And it's a very old school Fogg, or it's a very old school field house, and it's very traditional, and it's a very mm-hmm. unique environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you go in there, what's the big sign say? Pay heed all who enter, beware of the fog. Right, so beware of the fog. And fog references him. It's P-H-O-G. What kind of dog is this supposed to be? Because, I mean, it's a stuffed animal, but it's a little bit stylized. Sure. Um, In particular, why does it have uh, the kind of anime look to it? You know, I really don't have an answer for that. I think probably they were going for cute more than, you know, and that was just kind of the way cute came out then. And I think anytime, anytime you give something big eyes, you know, that, that lends itself to the cuteness and anime kind of follows along that, that same idea. Um, I like to think that this dog is actually a Datsun. He kind of has that look to him. It is a wiener dog. Yeah. And I think that's appropriate since autograph books started in Germany and Datsuns are a German breed of dog. That's true. So, Do you know, like, who made the dog? I don't know who made the dog. It doesn't have any kind of a, a maker's label or anything like that. Um, and they were pretty common. They came in different styles, but 
a lot of them were the wiener dog style, I think, because it gave you more surface area. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still compact, but it gave you more surface area <laughs> for riding. the wiener dog. <laughs> exactly. Sur- yeah. I mean, you could pick a golden retriever, but one, it's got really long hair. Right. <laughs> Two, you know, it's going to take up some room on your bed, whereas this little wiener dog, you know, fits in. All right, so uh, we're going to play. Uh, my last question is really kind of uh, related to, um, to well, you know, to celebrities and the concept of autographing. In particular, autographing odd things like a stuffed dachshund. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to give you the name of the celebrity. And mind mm-hmm. you, these celebrities are both modern pop culture and historical <laughs> figure. Uh, I'll give you the name of the celebrity, and I want you to tell me what it is you would have them autograph. Okay. You got it? I got it. Okay, so we're going to start out with your good friend, Dr. James Naismith, who was the inventor of basketball and uh, a coach at the University of Kansas. That's right. Um, I think, actually, I would have James Naismith sign a leather football helmet. because. What? He invented the leather but football. He's a basketball helmet. coach. No, he wasn't. He was a football coach before he was a basketball coach. And players were getting hurt because you know they weren't wearing any headgear. So he came up with a way to help them protect their ears and things. Huh. So that's what I'd have him sign. That's pretty brilliant. I would have him sign the original set of rules for basketball mm-hmm. because recently they were on sale and they sold for a lot of money. And yeah. if he signed them, maybe I could get it from him. Yeah. Just an idea. Yeah, and then you go to Antiques Roadshow. I don't know what I do with them. <laughs> and then you go to auction. <laughs> <laughs> I keep them and love them forever. I don't know. All right, the next celebrity, Buffalo Bill Cody. What would you have Buffalo Bill Cody sign? Well, let's see, Buffalo Bill, he had the whole Wild West show. Maybe a little bit of a dandy in a celebrity kind of way. He had yeah. some long flowing hair. He did have long flowing hair. Apparently that was the style back then. Yeah, him and Custer. I think... Much like Custer, I'd have him sign a curling iron. Yeah? Because how else did he get that hair? That's a not natural. Iron. Oh, that's interesting. I bet he would have loved that. <laughs> I would have him sign, uh, I would actually have him sign three aces and two eights, which was the hand he drew the day he died. Mm. Aces and eights, the dead man's hand. Very clever. All right. And finally, uh, probably the most important of the three celebrities, Elizabeth Berkeley. Also known as Jesse Spano from Saved by the Bell. What would you have her sign? I don't know how she got in here. Um, I think the thing I remember most about Jesse Spano was those ugly, ugly vests she wore. Like in every episode, she had an ugly vest and tight jeans. So, so I'm going to go with ugly vest. You're going to have her sign a, a, a ugly vest with weird geometric shapes on yeah. it? Yeah, kind of a Bill Cosby vest, if yeah. you will. Yeah. All right. That Good point. I would have her sign something that probably relates to her later career. Mm-hmm. I would have her stra- sign a stripper pole. Um, she yeah. seemed to be partial to that kind of thing when she did the movie Showgirls. Yeah, where has her career gone since then? I don't know. I haven't seen her a lot. Oh, I think she was on CSI Miami uh, last season. Yeah, on the television. Yeah. All right, Nikila. Well, thanks for talking to us about the uh, autographed dog. You're welcome. If you change your mind, take a chance. On the first in line, on the unsteal free, take a chance on me. In this week's Kansa Quiz, we lace up our Converse All Stars and hang the peach baskets. Fog Allen worked hard to earn the name Father of Basketball Coaching. After playing basketball at the University of Kansas for three seasons, he began his coaching career in 1907. He led teams at the University of Kansas, Baker University, and Haskell Institute. During his time at KU, he coached players who went on to be standout coaches in their own right, including Dean Smith and Adolph Rupp. After 50 seasons, Allen was the winningest coach in basketball history at the time. Fog Allen's career is the subject of today's Kansas Quiz. 
Before Alan embarked on this remarkable career, one of his mentors told him it couldn't be done. Do you know who told Alan, you can't coach basketball, you just play it? The Kansas Museum of History has almost 113,000 artifacts in its collection that range from fine paintings to bathroom mats. Like most museums, the majority of artifacts are donated by average citizens. Once an artifact becomes part of the museum, they must be numbered, researched, cataloged, prepared, and eventually stored in perpetuity. It's expensive and very long-term. For those reasons, curators are selective about what they take. Today, we sit down with the museum's accession committee to talk about what a museum is offered and what it accepts. Hello, accessions committee. Hello. T today, we have <laughs> curator Blair Tarr. Hi. Hi. <laughs> we have curator Laurel Fritch. Hi. Assistant, assistant director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Uh, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about the function of a museum's accession committee? Yeah, essentially it's a forum for uh, discussing anything that's been offered to the museum collections. And that can be by gift or by for sale or bequest. And so our accessions committee um, is a group of staff members, all the people around the table, plus Bob Keck-Eisen, the museum director, who's not here today. Yeah. Um, and uh, essentially, we divide the collections by type according to three of the curators, and everybody's got their different specialties, and they re research anything that's been offered to the, to the collection and then make recommendations to the committee, and the committee is where we discuss whether or not um, it's it should be taken in the collection or reconsidered or tabled and declined. Laurel, what are some of the criteria that you as a curator, uh, what do you consider um, when you think about whether you're going to take an object into the collection or not? Well, we will look at the connection to Kansas that that particular object has. Sometimes we're offered objects from Texas or something like that that really don't have a lot of connection with Kansas and since that's the focus of our museum that's really what we want to make sure that we take into the collection. Also we will look at the number of items we already have in our collection that are similar to that. Alright the committee meets once a month to review offers of donation which means uh, we review the stories like you were talking about uh, the Kansas connection or we review the, uh, the story behind them and stories can be inspiring um, some have been slightly disturbing, and quite often, they're kind of hilarious. Those are the fun ones. Right, and today we're going to share just a few recent offers. Uh, remember, sometimes these are objects are accepted, and sometimes they are declined. Sometimes they're not accepted. Uh, we're going to start out with uh, Laurel. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about a recent offering. I recently had an offer of a wedding dress between the dates of 1890 and 1900. And uh, we already have 18 wedding dresses in our collection just <laughs> from that time period alone, that decade. And overall, we have something like, I want to say, maybe 60 to 80 or something like that, wedding dresses. 80 you know, wedding dresses? Something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> a lot of wedding dresses in our collection already. And um, a lot of times we are offered wedding dresses. and. Part of the reason for that is that it's a very special moment in somebody's life and so they want to hold on to it. They're very beautiful, so people want to hold on to it for that reason. 
So, um, as you can imagine, we decided to decline this one because we already have a lot in our collection already, which is usually the case. It, it, it becomes kind of interesting because, you know, what is it like a, you know, once in a lifetime or hopefully once in a lifetime event for most people, you know, <laughs> from our perspective where you get it offered so many times, it's, it's kind of like, oh, wow. Another wedding dress. Great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard from a curatorial standpoint because it's so special to the donor. Um, and you try and respect that attitude, although from your perspective, it's pretty commonplace. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Which is just kind of backwards because we tend to get excited about, like, the common day items. We do. Like, we've had work day work dresses offered, and we're like, oh, yay, something from 1890 mm -hmm. that a woman worked in. But, you know, those things aren't saved because they're not special. They don't mean anything to anybody. Yeah. So they're a little more rare than the wedding dress that everybody saves because it is a big event. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, too, because it's a work dress, it's worn every single day. And a lot of times it just doesn't last. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you find that the common clothes, the common everyday clothes actually become the rare artifacts to find. While the, you know, the rare wedding dress, um, there's tons of them in, all, in museum collections all over. All right, Rebecca, um, you're going to tell us a little bit um, a little bit about an object. Go ahead. Yeah, um, my object of the month is a combine. Uh, it's kind also of... Also like, known as a harvester. A uh, harvester, yes. Oh, yeah, I assume everybody knows what a combine is. Sorry. <laughs> I harvest grain. Um, and it's a little ironic that as a state historical society for Kansas State, very closely allied and connected to agriculture, that we don't have a combine in our collections. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been looking into it, I think probably once a year, usually we get an offer to combine. And uh, there are a lot of different issues to consider with a combine. I mean, obviously we need one. We all recognize that at Accessions Committee. We need a combine in our collections to preserve that, that aspect of our state's history. But they're huge. They tend to be pretty big pieces of equipment. They are huge. And um, oftentimes what's being offered to us is something that's been sitting outside for a long time. Therefore, there are condition issues. Mm -hmm. um, Russ, Nikayla's laughing because <laughs> the one we, we just considered a month or two ago had some real condition issues, very rusty. Um, and then um, one thing that we kind of go around in, um, in accessions committee is where should the combine come from? I think Bob, it doesn't matter to Bob uh, where it comes from. Bob, Bob our museum director. Our, our museum director. Um, but it does matter to some mem members of the committee that it comes from the western part of Kansas or from uh, one of the counties of the state that is known as the top wheat producers, let's say, uh, because not all of our counties are agricultural. Um, so the one we got offered to us recently uh, was actually the right size. It was a small one. Uh, but it had been sitting outside for a long time, so it was rusty. And, of course, rubber does not last, and the tires were <laughs> shot. And, I mean, it was a sweet-looking little deal, I have yeah. to say. But it was just kind of rusty. And then um, it was used about two miles from the museum here in Topeka. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, we battle every once in a while. Well, pretty frequently is that people think of us as the local museum. There is no other collecting agency, historical society, for our area, our, our county. So they come to us. So we get a preponderance of local items offered to us, and this was a local combine. So we turned it down. Mm -hmm. Blair, uh, yes. you're going to tell us about the governor's office, the gift that just keeps giving. Yes, one of the problems. <laughs> <laughs> 
You don't know how true that is. <laughs> uh, yes, one of the problems, well, maybe not a problem of being a state agency like the Historical Society is that every time there's a change in the governor's office, we're likely to hear from somebody mm-hmm. down in the governor's office because of all the wonderful things the governor has given during his or her term such as maybe a hundred of baseball caps, mm-hmm. a plaque at just about every place they went to. And right. It's all commemorative stuff. It's, it's mostly commemorative, commemorative gifts stuff. gifts you, you get after a speech. And kids' drawings. Yes. And, and even the nice stuff that they get from foreign trips, that are some ceramics that are really very nice, they really aren't very useful for telling Kansas history. Or so. dinosaur eggs from China. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which are on display. Which right are on display, yes. If you want to see them. <laughs> We, we usually get called out and we usually get a chance to go through some things uh, to see if there's anything that we really want. And for the most part, no, we don't really want this. <laughs> We've already got enough of this. We can't use the plaques. Take them. Make a floor out of them. Anything. Yeah. Uh, although recently we have had a few things that we're, we have taken. We've taken a number of flags that were flown by National Guard units from Kansas and Iraq and Afghanistan, which... Mm-hmm useful for telling that story uh, and mo- most recently we had, among other things was a Kansas banner we decided to take it we don't have one in the collection so we might as well it is a state symbol so Blair is it hard to say no to a governor or do you kind of relish it <laughs> are you going to feel the heat if you tell a governor we don't want your junk I think we've been lucky the last few times that they sort of understand this and they they realize that we can't take everything, and it is a bit of a problem to store these things and to maintain them for time because they understand that it does cost money. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing and telling us uh, a little bit about uh, what you guys think about when you're um, considering taking a new artifact into the collection. Kayla Zimmerman, and the answer to today's Kansas quiz is James Naismith. Though he invented the game of basketball, Naismith mainly saw it as a way to pass the long winter between football and baseball seasons. He came to the University of Kansas in 1898 and was the school's first basketball coach. When he began his studies at KU, Fog Allen joined the basketball team and eventually became James Naismith's most successful protege. Naismith's indifference towards the sport is apparent in his record. With 55 wins and 60 losses, he is the only coach in KU history to have a losing record. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Director Rebecca Martin. Hi. And Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today we are connecting William Allen White, a Kansas-born fiction writer and political pundit, from the early 20th century to the Roscoe Wind Farm, a ginormous wind farm in West Texas. Rebecca, can you give us a little background on the Roscoe Wind Farm? Well, before the wind farm, the area was just plain old Roscoe, Texas, a city of 1300 and home to the Roscoe High School Plowboys. Located. I wonder what the girls were. They were the plow girls. It says so on Wikipedia. Uh (laughs) And it must be so. (laughs) Well, uh, Roscoe is located halfway between Fort Worth and El Paso. Like almost all of Texas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And can you tell there's a little tension between Kansas and Texas? (laughs) And everywhere in Texas. 
everywhere, yeah. Um, Roscoe's a cotton-growing region that ha fell on hard times at the end of the 20th century, and that's when a local 65-year-old one-armed cotton grower named Cliff Etheridge envisioned turning Roscoe into Wind City, USA. By 2009, Etheridge convinced the Irish energy company Airtricity to construct the largest wind farm in existence. And today, 640 majestic wind turbines tower over 80,000 acres of cotton fields. With an ability to produce over 800 megawatts of energy, Roscoe has more wind energy capacity than most nations. It's and they do good, say, you know, Texas is a whole nother country. So. <laughs> uh, the farm in Roscoe covers four counties, or near Roscoe, and pays landowners between $500 and $1,000 in annual leasing fees per wind turbine. Ka ching. So 640, <laughs> 640 turbines. I bet there's a couple people that own several multiple yeah. turbines. Do you think there's any land for sale in West Texas? <sighs> Not anymore. <laughs> oh. And could you afford it now? Further, <laughs> I guess further west than Roscoe. Huh? <laughs> well, in, in a state of cattle barons and oil barons, Roscoe may boast the wealthiest of wind barons. Oh. Nice. <laughs> All right, thanks, Rebecca. Uh, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect a uh, ginormous wind farm in West Texas to William L. White. Yes, I do, and it's not the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, this one was tough. Um, so the Roscoe Wind Farm is owned and operated now by a company called, it's either Eon or Aon. Um, it's based on the Greek word, Climate and Renewables, a German-based engineering company um, that has holdings throughout the world. The American branch of Aon is opera operated by Pennsylvania Power and Light, or PPL. Their headquarters are located in a very cool Art Deco-style building in Allentown, Pennsylvania. The PPL building was designed by Harvey Wiley Corbett, who was an architect who also helped design Rockefeller Center in New York mm -hmm, City. Mm -hmm. And at one time, Rockefeller Center housed the Rockefeller Foundation, the philanthropic organization founded by John D. Rockefeller Sr. and Jr. And for several years, William Allen White served as a trustee for the foundation. Ugh. And upon his retirement, White wrote a letter to John D. Rockefeller Jr. expressing his appreciation for the foundation. And he said, you cannot know how much I value the association with you and with the other trustees. Wow. Which is kind of unbelievable because William Allen White didn't have much appreciation for John D. Rockefeller Sr. Mm. So the fact that he really liked Jr. is kind of... Kind of amazing, but they met. They met several times. One time at a party where they got along pretty well. So. Nice. I do have a. I wonder. Do you ever notice that when they're talking about huge wind farms, it's always built by some European company, like Irish, Dutch, German, mm -hmm. never American companies. Well, we're behind the curve. I think yeah, maybe we'll power. change that, but which we, is a shame. We do make the bolts that hold that true. together. True. Oh, so. True. We do make the bolts. So it's an important part. <laughs> They'd be nothing without uh, it. <laughs> nicely done. Nicely done. Uh, Rebecca, you want to give us the uh, challenge for the next episode? Sure. In the next episode, we will attempt to connect William Allen White to the most celebrated monster in American pop culture, Elmo. Hmm, <laughs> Had to go in there for a while, didn't I? In the 1980s, this furry red toddler monster stormed Sesame Street, and the neighborhood was never the same. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for many, this red menace has caused a division between classic characters and new-aged puppets. But kids and Rosie O'Donnell sure do love it. Well, Rosie O'Donnell loves him. Yeah. I too. Uh, so come on back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to Elmo. Who proved to 
be the bigger attention hog, a newspaper editor from Emporia, or a toddler monster from Sesame Street? Find out in two weeks. That concludes episode 120, Autograph Hound. If you would like to see an image of this mesmerizingly cute stuffed dachshund with anime eyes, go to our all-new website at kshs.org and click on Podcast from the Interact menu. While there, check out our newest features, like Kanzapedia, and request to become our friend on Facebook. Come back in two weeks when museum specialist Donna Ray Pearson and I examine a doll from a historically black neighborhood in Topeka known as Mudtown. Did this doll help bridge a racial rift between a young white girl and an elderly black woman a decade before desegregation? This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.